You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Episode 17 of that one time on tour is brought to you by the band Dusk. Dusk is an alternative rock band from Los Angeles, California. All of Dusk's songs are connected through a narrative story written by the band, which explores themes of utopia, morality, and control. Dusk will be playing a show at Molly Malone's in LA on August 29th with another sponsor of the show, Havoc Faction. For more information on Dusk, please visit duskband.com. Now here it is, their new single, We'd Love to Help You Drown.
What's up? I'm Christopher Rowe from the Ataris, and you're listening to That One Time on Tour with Chris Swinney. One for the road, cause it's going on and on. We'll be driving through the darkest night until the break of dawn. We'll be heading for the cities, another show for us to play. To get back in the bed tomorrow, we'll do it. We'll do it all again Hello and welcome to episode number 17 of that one time on tour. As always, I'm your host, Chris Swinney. Thank you guys so much for coming back. You know, week in and week out, I get a lot of emails, I get a lot of calls, and you guys are really digging what I'm doing. So I I, I appreciate that. I didn't really know if anybody would care, and it's really cool that you do. It makes it all worth it. So I appreciate you guys checking out last week's episode with my buddy Adam Glass. It was a lot of fun. And uh, this week is no different. I got to sit down with my good friend and old bandmate, Christopher Rowe from the Ataris. We had a wonderful conversation. We talked about the beginnings of the band, uh, when he got signed and when he moved out to California, living in his van, everything. So I hope you guys are going to enjoy that. Before I jump into my conversation with Chris, I do need to tell you about my amazing sponsors. Back for another episode, we have Enjoy the Ride Records. Enjoy the Ride Records, uh, they have an awesome selection of limited edition color pop punk vinyl reissues, and they're actually the exclusive U.S. distro partner for the new Ataris release, Silver Turns to Rust. So So uh, if you want to get a copy of that new Atari's release or anything else, go to enjoytheriderecords.com and at checkout, put in the promo code T-O-T-O-T to save 10%. So make sure to check out enjoytheriderecords.com. And I also need to tell you about Rockabilia.com. Rockabilia.com is your one-stop shop for everything band merch related. They have over 500,000 unique items, all officially licensed by the bands. That means the bands are getting paid. So make sure to go to Rockabilia.com and at checkout, put in the promo code PCTOTOT to save 15% on your entire order. That is PCTOTOT. Okay, the business is out of the way. Make sure that you are following us on all of the social media platforms at TOTOT Podcast. If you want to become a sponsor, shoot me an email, TOTOTPodcast at gmail.com, and make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review us in the iTunes store. So here it is, my conversation with my good buddy, Christopher Rowe from the Ataris. So hey, Chris, what's going on, man? Uh, Not a lot, just... uh hanging out here at home and uh excited to talk to you i'm excited to talk to you too i mean I, I say this on every podcast but i get people that i haven't talked to in quite a while and you and i you know we chat back and forth on facebook and stuff but yeah it's been a really long time man so i, I hope you're doing well you're doing yes, well out in, out in cali Do, yeah doing really well yeah just uh I mean, how long ago did we meet? Like, what what year was it? Uh, uh, I think the first time we actually met. Well, I met you in two thousand three. <laughs> I met you in two thousand three. Oh yeah, but, no, but I mean, like, when we like started hanging out, like that's what I meant. Like when I when I when I moved back to Indiana for a while, and like oh seven yeah. maybe, oh eight. Yeah, that's what I was. Something I'm like super that. Super bad with dates, but yeah, oh seven, yeah. I think. Yeah, something like that. So yeah, so it's been uh, it's been quite a while since I've seen you. <laughs> Likewise, yeah, that's for sure. And I, and I can't. And what? When's the last time that was? That's what I'm trying to figure out. The last time we crossed paths in the, in the human form. The last time we crossed paths, uh, my wife was probably seven or eight months pregnant with my son, and I came to Pensacola and I got to play a couple songs with you guys down in Florida. That's right. That is totally right. I remember at that uh, 
uh, I forgot the name of the bar, but I, I know the know the bar really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The vinyl that was cool. Yeah, that was fun, man. Really fun. And I think uh, about a year or two Likewise. before that, a year or two before that, I came and uh, played with you guys again in Pensacola at a different place, the Handle Bar, that little punk rock bar. Yeah, yeah, I like that place too. That's a good place. <laughs> so uh, what, <laughs> what I'd like to do is uh, I do this on every podcast. I want to I want to know your story of how you got into music like you know you 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 play the the guitar a uh, kind of a unique way I'd like to hear about that and what got you into guitar and, and what what bands kind of got you going at the beginning Okay well uh, for me I think uh the probably one of the one of the biggest ones uh that made me want to play guitar I guess if you're going back to like the first was being a kid in like the 70s and and Kiss were like the biggest band on, you know, on TV and the radio and anything. So, you know, it was probably 1979 and my parents, you know, my dad was really into music. He loved the Stones and the Who and uh, I don't know, like a lot, a lot of bands and he had a great record collection. So I would listen to his records and being that they took notice that I liked music, my, my mom and dad, it's even in my baby book, you can, there's this one uh, Christmas, I think of 70, maybe 78 to 79. So I was like two going on three. And I, I already loved music, and uh, they bought me an eight-track of uh, I think Kiss Alive Two, and it even it says the story in my baby book. It's about how I snuck, like before Christmas happened, I snuck behind a door, got on some sort of like stool, and I got I knew where they hid the damn gifts, and I got up there and I grabbed it and I opened it myself, and they caught me. <laughs> and so like that was kind of like the beginning of the end, and, and and so you know people hate on Kiss all they want. They had like these catchy songs that I think appealed to all walks of life, be it like, and then there were these larger than life comic book characters that, you know, you were as a kid, you know, you were attracted to that, but you also loved the, the like kind of anthems that they wrote. <clears throat> so that was the first. And then as a teenager, you know, I, I loved all kinds of music, you know, I, but I think, you know, listening to the, the MTV program every Sunday night, 120 minutes, you know, I discovered like the Son Sonic Youth and the Cure and the Smiths and all those bands, but I wasn't good enough to play that style yet so then when i discovered the ramones i was like oh this and and then the descendants that's like this speaks to me but 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 another one one step further there was a band from muncie indiana that was this band called fon where the singer matt went on to sing in that band squirt gun and two of their most known songs ended up being songs they used from fon so i would go see fon at this place in muncie called flying tomato which was a pizza place that you you know about but other people don't i've played there with <laughs> yeah. my bands so before yeah yeah, so all the all for the listeners that don't know about this place, it was this this pizza place that was uh, that did shows, and it had this like elevated stage that you'd be down on the floor, and the stage was kind of up, so it was really odd the, the way it was, and the bands would play and look down on you, and 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 uh, you know Matt he played a Telecaster, and I just really I really loved the sound of his guitar, and I and I really wanted to get a Telecaster, and so my first guitar I got got that I was really serious on. I had a few before that, but my dad bought went out and bought me a, a Fender Fender Telecaster and I, I played that forever and that was the first guitar I used when I recorded our first album anywhere but here. But in between I would record all my demos on a little four track, a Fostex X eighteen four track in my bedroom using an Alesis HR sixteen drum machine, which I would program all the drum parts. Wow. Because um you know, I, I, I understood what I wanted in my head for the drums, but I didn't play drums yet. And I didn't have a drummer because no one in small town Indiana that <laughs> I knew could afford a drum set. Yeah. So uh, that's what I did for many years. And then um, 
and I don't know how far you want to take this, but well, I w- I would like to. I don't I don't want to cut you off, but I uh, a mutual friend of ours that has been on. Well, a mutual friend of ours that was on the podcast a couple episodes ago, Marco DeSantis. Um, he actually he we talked a lot about well, like when you moved out to California and you met him, and he started playing with the Ataris. But the one thing that he also mentioned that he actually talks a lot about because he he teaches college now and talks to people about different things with yeah, the music yeah. business. Yeah, yeah, we hung up the other day and he. Well, he, he said that he, he, he kind of cites your story of how the band got signed and how everything happened. And it's almost kind of like a movie. And I mean, I know all about it, but I would love you to tell my listeners kind of from your mouth, like how all that came to be. I would love to. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's basically what I was going to ramble about is that like the next part of the story is like after I'd been in my bedroom recording songs from like age 13 to about age 17. Um, I mean, in between there, I did have one band right at 13. I had a band with some friends in Anderson, Indiana, and we were called severe and profound. That was their name and their thing. But I kind of came to the table and they were all older. And, and you know, the thing was, is I think from them, they didn't, they didn't like taking like direction from a little kid, but they were like all super talented, but I think that they need somebody to come in and help write some songs and like, be like, yo, let's, let's take this a step further because y'all are good, you know? And like the drummer is still to this day, Sky Joseph, and he was one of the best drummers I've ever played with, probably next to my drummer now and and, and my, my friend Bob Hogue, who has recorded all the songs. So, like, you know, it, it was it was sad to see the, all these talented people in our town, but no one really, like, going anywhere with it. And for me, I, I guess I was the, like, one that, that, in my eyes, saw the obvious thing of, like, dude, we could take this really far. <clears throat> but the, the bad side of that is, is everyone in that town small town Indiana feels very trapped by their surroundings and a lot of them don't want to get out and don't want to like, and, and so for me, I just like, well, fuck this. I'm going to go and do something myself. And after that band kind of dissipated due to things that are just stupid, you know, I, I decided to write my own songs and I did. And, and so I did that for many years, but I, you know, I wasn't good about the social side and like starting a band. So uh, I would give my demo cassette to all the bands I would go see at all the shows I would see at Bogarts in Cincinnati or up in Chicago where we'd all go to shows. And so uh, and I would just do that. There was a want ad for a drummer in the cassette tape, and that was my only reason for handing out the demos. So uh, I ended up giving a, going to a show on Friday the 13th of 1996 at Bogarts in, uh, in uh, Cincinnati. It was like Mr. T Experience, The Queers, and The Vandals. Wow. And I was a fan of Mr. T Experience and the Queers, and uh, I, I didn't really listen to the vandals at the time. And my friend Jason, who gave me a ride, who I was playing music with sometimes in Indiana, he uh, uh, he's like, yo, you should give your demo to the vandals. And I was like, all right, cool. And I gave him one, and he literally handed it off to this guy Fitz, Paul Fitz, the, their roadie. Yeah. And it was it was more like, I, I didn't even know you know why he said that. And then later he's like, yeah, they're starting a label. And I was like, oh, that's cool, right on, but... Didn't think anything of it. And then uh, I guess the short story would be like several months later, uh, I received a letter in the mail that was like, hey, we're, we're trying to reach you. The phone number and the demo is disconnected. Can you give us a call? And I was like, and I was like, all right. So I called and I just thought it was a friend playing a joke or something. It was like, I was like, yeah. This is uh, this is Chris. Uh, how's it going? And they're like, Yeah, uh, this is Joe from the Vandals. Uh, and I didn't remember giving the Vandals a tape, so I was like, How what the hell? How they get this number? You know, or how, how they reach out to me? You know, and uh, sure enough, through through that phone call, you know, I realized like, Oh, this isn't a fucking joke. These this this is really for real. And they were like, You know, Hey, uh, do like you know, we want we really like your songs. We want to put put out your your record. And I'm like, Well, that's just me and a drum machine and a demo. And they're like, 
oh, wow, well, if we could find you a drummer, would you be interested in coming to California and recording recording a record? I'm like, of course. So, um, you know, through them, I, you know, they were thinking about a few drummers that, you know, were, were free, but at the moment, you know, they were like, well, if we can't, you know, find a drummer that's interested in playing, which, you know, would you, you know, we could always have like Brooks Wackerman or, or like Josh Breeze, one of our drummers, maybe play drums, you know, and I was like, that's cool, but, you know, I'm really looking for a drummer that wants to be in a band. Yeah. So, of course, you know, when they, when they, when they mentioned Derek Plord, uh, you know, I was a fan of Blackwagon and, and I was like, oh, I'm into that idea. But I had heard from a few people that I knew who, who kind of knew Derek that, you know, in bands that I'd meet because I ran a zine and I would go and interview bands at shows. And so I went to a show at Bogarts with a couple bands and, and one of the guys from one of those bands was like, yo, Derek's a great drummer and a great guy, but he's got a heroin problem. And, and you know, he may be on the wagon, but, you know, he, you know, you just got to be careful. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, I went into it kind of knowing this is before the Internet. So it wasn't like you'd like type in like something on the Internet and be like, they're explored, you know, and just see their whole fucking history. It wasn't anything like you that. Got all, you got all the information like like secondhand. Like if you knew somebody like yeah. you, you almost you couldn't just check people out like we can today. Totally. And then, and, you know, as you know, if you go, you know, you picked up a record from a band, you would see a picture of the band. Like when I picked up the Descendants, like uh liveage or something there was a shitty photo on the cover and you saw like okay the dreadlock guy he's probably the singer <laughs> and like you know or maybe you traded like shitty vhs through like tape trading or yeah. something and, you, and you've seen a live bootleg but like at that point there were certain bands where like i traded vhs tapes and i knew what certain bands looked like but like i didn't know what he looked like just like i didn't know what like some of my favorite bands looked like which was cool there was a mystery you know but um so when i got to california um i flew out um, I'd say like, wow, I don't, I don't, I don't even remember. I'm so bad with dates, but it was only a few months later. Like they already introduced, introduced me to Derek. Derek called me. We talked a bit on the phone and, you know, he was like, uh, you know, would you, you know, let's, let's make this happen. You know, would you like to come out and, and record? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. And so I flew out. It was, it's probably right around Christmas time of like that. Oh, that must've been, <clears throat> I'm trying to think like 96 or something. Um, I might be off of the year, but maybe it was all 95, but yeah, long story short, I flew out and recorded and, you know, but during that time, it was really a tumultuous thing because I got out there and I flew into San Francisco. I was by myself and nobody was at the airport waiting for me. And I was like, what the fuck? And all I had was a phone number. So I called it and they're like, Oh, and I was like, Derek, he's like, Oh yeah. Oh, we're still in Santa Cruz. Yeah. We're, we'll be there. It's like, all right, well, Santa Cruz is like fucking pretty far away from San Francisco airport. So uh, luckily, my saving grace, he was roommates with Sean Sellers from Good Riddance. And Sean, like, got there and he, like, you know, dude, Derek, Derek's pretty bad off. But, you know, I'm, you know, if you need anything, I'm here. And he was, like, kind of, like, took me under his wing a little bit. Like, it's, like, a backup of, like, making me feel good. Because he knew it was, like, fresh off the boat, kid. I was fucking, you know, so young. But, you know, Derek got it done. You know, we got, <clears throat> we, we drove down to Huntington Beach where the Vandals label was. And, uh. We uh, ended up recording at the studio called F1 in, in La Habra, California, which is no longer there. And uh, we uh, recorded 21 songs in about, oh, God, like a week. <laughs> and then and then they were, like, mixed in two days, which is uh, insane when I think about it. But, like, I, I knew the songs front to back. I played all the guitar and the bass and all of our records. But that, that record specifically, like, I had those songs so well rehearsed because they were – a written from third nobody you know everyone always says your first records are written over your it, it takes what what's that saying about it takes your whole, whole it says, life to write it, yeah your you've got like or, your whole life to write your first record and six months to write your second record yeah it's so true because 
you know, I'd been writing that album and, 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 and I wrote a bunch of songs in the studio too. I was like, well, can we record a few extras? They're like, well, sure. You know? So uh, yeah, I recorded so many fucking songs and I was like, I want to put them all on the record. And it was like me. It was a, it was like a time capsule. I just wanted to fucking put it out there yeah. and move on. And, uh, and I was proud of it. You know, it was just my first record, but, uh, yeah, so I, we did it. But the, you know, the downside was, is I was sharing a room at this place above Kung Fu and Huntington beach, which is, was, was in this old German village it's still there. It was like, it looked like the Matterhorn at Disney. Like it was, it was this weird German village, right? All these little German shops. And there was a hotel and the old guy that ran it was this crazy dude. And, and I remember, yeah, he was the fucking weirdo. His name was like, I think it was like Gunter or something. And, and in fact, in the original pressing of, of the, anywhere we hear it even says like a big fuck you to, to, to this guy. Cause he would like come in our room and like, he was just really rude. And yeah, he, he was really odd. But, uh, but yeah, so long story short, when I was sharing the, the, the room with Derek, it was obvious, like, and he was, like, going through withdrawals, and I never experienced that. So I'm not only, like, recording the record and far away from home, but I'm also going through this experience with a guy who's going through withdrawals of, of a fucking serious drug like heroin. And, you know, I never experienced that in Indiana. Now Indiana has an epidemic of that shit. But back then, it was unheard of to have a friend. Maybe you had a friend like, man, I got some weed, bro. You know, that's all I ever experienced growing up was like the hardest thing I ever experienced growing up in the same area that you grew up in was weed and and alcohol. Like it would be completely foreign to me, especially you're out there, you know, you, this is kind of your ticket. You know, you're a small town guy. Like I was, you get out to California to record your record. And now you're going through this weird experience that you have no idea what's going on. That's insane, man. Yeah, it was, it was a trip. And you know, but 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 Joe from the Vandals, he kind of saw it. He's like, look, you know, let's get these drum tracks done, and we'll just send Derek home. We'll, we'll, we'll buy him a flight. And, like, you know, just get – but, you know, he, everyone said, like – and I later saw Derek when he was clean. He, I, I saw him at, play an RKL on a day off I had. The RKL played an impromptu set of Warp Tour in San Francisco. And it was the most amazing thing, amazing thing for me because I sat behind the drums and just watched him play the whole time. And it was like, wow, I wish that I knew this guy then because he he was a great guy i you know being from indiana and being like the way i am i didn't get the sarcastic humor at the time because i was i was young and you know it was light years away from what i knew and grew up with you know it was like everybody where i grew up with kind of had this kind of like serious mentality and it was and you know living in california now and then moving to santa barbara and living there for several years like you know after all that and after i like lightened the fuck up and i became who i feel i was and, and am now I, I like totally got it and you know he would there were so many funny things he would do that like now i can look back and say i love that but then it was like holy shit like the one one example you know he would he would have you know like the thing that i don't know if he created but all those guys in that camp of like no effects and and lag wagging like they would all know what the what the hell the game is but the game is basically you know, if you, you're holding, you know, but I mean, for your listeners, if you're holding like a plate of food or something or, or you know, and probably the more fucked up, the more you win, <laughs> and, yeah. but the more, it, you know, uh, so, you know, Derek would be like, oh, hey, what's that? And there's just, you just smack it out of the dude's hand, like a whole plate <laughs> of food or something. And you just go, the game. And, and, and the first time I had that done to me, I'm like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> but, you know, that's Derek. And that was in a nutshell, you know, like the most dry, fucking sarcastic, beautiful humor. And, um, you know, I, I always tell people, if you listen to the end of the first Bad Astronaut EP, Acrophobe, there's, uh, after this, the last song ends, there's like a good 15 minutes of Derek 
he had this little bit of like, I guess, leftover blotter art and, and that he had shown me once that was in, it was in like a book of like ticket stubs and things he, he saved. And I guess his probation officer came over and he found it and it wasn't even like acid. It was just like art or leftover blotter or whatever. And he got thrown in jail and, 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 you know, this is during the time he was clean and sober. And, you know, this whole f- bunch of phone calls are basically him calling our friend Jeff Capra, who he was playing music with at the time and being like, yo dude, not in jail. So rad. You know, kind of like in Santa Barbara, one says like, it's so rad, meaning it's not awesome at all. You know, it's like <laughs> the backwards humor and sarcasm. So it's all yeah. these calls and it just gets more and more funny and fucked up. Cause it's just him. He'll first he'll call and actually say sentence, and then he'll just call and start reciting things he sees around him, like extension cords, lights, late, and then hangs up. <laughs> and it's just fucked up. But I mean, if anyone wants to know Derek, I'd say like start there, and that's that's a probably a beautiful like starting point of his humor. <clears throat> but um, but yeah, he was. Uh, I'll tell if you, if you got time, I'll yeah. tell you one short tour story. The first tour we ever did with us MXPX, and 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 when it was me, Marco, and Derek. I know that days, my listeners would love to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, first tour I ever did. Uh, the Vandals set up this tour when I, I moved out to California finally. And uh, we tried to do the Der- uh, the band with Derek, me, and, and Marco, 72 of Sugar Call, playing bass. Because the goal was always we'd, we'd find a bass player. I, at first, I was playing bass. Our friend Jason was playing guitar. It was like, you know, we'll find a bass player. Jason was going to move out to California and, and you know, then we'll, and we'll do it with a second guitar player. But all that didn't work out. You know, Jason... Jason, it just didn't work out, and you know he's a great guy, but not as far as being in a band together. But when when it was, so it was like, all right, I got out there, and me and Derek and Marco started playing, and we was like, let's just go play some shows. We'll find another guitar player later. <clears throat> but um, we got on this tour, and Vandals thought it was a great idea to set up a tour called the Turd Town Tour, which is they were going to do a tour of all the worst or like most B markets that there were, even like C markets. It was like Modesto. I think the most like major market of the tour was maybe like. Vegas, but it was mostly like Tijuana, Modesto, Merced. It was all these farm towns of, of like whole, but I think maybe did Fresno. But uh, so it was a fun first tour because it was all these really, really like off the wall places of like where I grew up in Indiana. And uh, we played this one tour. I think it was Modesto or this one show like up near Modesto. And after the show, um, <clears throat> we drove like halfway towards the next show and we got this like room at this shitty little hotel and, and us in the MXPX, we weren't even 21 yet. So like we couldn't drink, but you know, at the time it was like, you know, you'd find the one older guy, like, you know, and I'd never really drank before, but I was like, you know, let's, let's get some booze, you know? So we had Derek, you know, we went to the liquor store cause Derek, Derek drank. And then like, I didn't know what to buy. So I like, think I bought like some night train <laughs> <laughs> or like some like, you know, like poor men, like what, what you see, like a homeless guy on our street, like drinking nowadays, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I swear it was like night train and like something else. And it was cheap. And, and so we like all pass it around. We're all drinking. And then like Derek's walking naked through the hallway with a towel wrapped around his head. Like, you know, he was just, and he just fucking, it was just so random. And like, he, you know, he like, I can't even explain it. I have some pictures, but I mean, but, uh, you know, and then I think like, he threw the bottle and like broke the bottle on the wall. And then like, all you know, just all this crazy shit. And like, we were just, you know, we're just kids. And it was, just, and like, I have this picture under the CD of anywhere, but here you see like Marco pouring the, like a bottle of Cisco or like nitrate all over himself. And it's just like 
So when I, we re-released that album, the re-release, like Marco had no idea, but you, I was like, Marco, you should pick up the CD. And he like lifts up the CD and he sees this picture of himself, like pouring a bottle of like nitrate down his, <laughs> down his mouth, running down his naked, bare, hairy <laughs> Italian chest. <laughs> That's awesome. But anyway, so we check out the next day and the guy that was really, really not into us at the hotel you know, we go to like hand because it was an old fashioned style key, and we go to hand him back the key. Me and Derek go inside. And he's like, "Hey, uh, we want to give you back the key," and he's and he just like turns around slowly, and he just hammers his hand down on the desk. Goes twenty four complaints, <laughs> <laughs> broken glasses. Why? Why do you do this? <laughs> and I swear that was like the first time like that I ever like I was like, wow, this is touring, I guess. But uh yeah, that was and Derek and then Derek responds in his sarcastic tone. He goes, uh, it was our friend's birthday. Because <laughs> <laughs> awesome. he always goes, It's not my birthday, or it's not my birthday. Like, you know, I don't know, it's something getting said. But yeah, he goes, Hey, it was, it was our friend's birthday. That's great. Oh, that man. one. Can I tell one more really short one? Dude, you can tell as many. You can tell as many as you want, man. We're good to go. Because you know me, man. You wind me up, and I'll. And then it like leads to one other OCD thing, and I ramble. And I <laughs> it's ramble. All, it's all great yeah, content. I don't want to cut you off. No, I've got some good questions for later on, but these are these are gold, man. Keep cool. going. I'll tell this one. And I'll let you ask a question. Okay. Like, when I talked to Mike Herrera, it was the same way. Like we like get each other going, and like, oh my god, and we go on a tangent. But um, no, I love it, yeah, man. So it's then great. that same tour. Cool. I'm glad. I love you. You're a great dude. You are too, man. I love you, <laughs> you get too. get all gushy. <laughs> so uh, we played Gilman Street in Berkeley on that tour. And me, I was all excited because, you know, Gilman Street was the place for all the Lookout Records bands that I loved. Uh, and, and Jawbreaker and Sam I Am and Operation Ivy and Early Green Day, they all started out playing this place. So for me, I was excited. But for Derek, you know, anyone who had played that place knew it was a hole in the wall. All the walls were covered with spray paint, graffiti, it was this really dirty, dank, like community space that nowadays, if you were somewhere like that was on your tour, you'd be like, ah, oh, not the community center space place. Oh my God, that's <laughs> going to be a bummer. They probably have a list of rules that say you can't swear. You know, it's run by a bunch of PC people, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, but Gilman Street was that, but it was iconic because of what the fuck it was. And they did a lot of good things and they worked with Food Nut Bombs and all these people. And they were, they were a space that existed for a reason and it helped out that scene for sure. <clears throat> so I was going there to play and I thought one thing and Derek was probably thinking another thing. So we get there and we show up and the dude running, I don't remember his name. He comes right up. We're there at load in time. He goes, hey, man, uh, Mike, nice to meet you. You know, I, I'm, I'm uh, running the show tonight. And Derek just, and, and I'm all like looking around like, oh my God, this is where all my fucking young heroes play. And Derek, or Derek just goes, who fired the mate? <laughs> <laughs> no shit. Exactly what he said. And I was just like, what? But that's the kind of shit that dude could get away with. He could say anything. We played a party. It, look, he moved out to Indiana to kind of get clean for a while. I forgot about this before we were, or no, after we recorded, he like, met, you know, he hit me up. He's like, yo man, can, can I give the shot again? I really want to do this. I really believe in the songs. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, dude, you know, come out to Indiana. We were all living in this hole in the wall space. It was Jason's apartment. It was a run one room apartment. And, uh, whenever, uh, whenever I listen to Tom, Tom Petty song, it's like, I used to live in a two-room apartment. I'm like, fuck you, Tom. I lived in a one-room apartment. No, <laughs> it wasn't even a studio one-room yeah. apartment. I love Tom Petty. But, uh, but it was literally the size of like a closet that had been turned into an apartment. And it was probably $100 a month, and we had no heat. We turned off the heat in like February because we're like, oh, we're going to move to California and start touring 
in, in March. So let's just turn off the heat to save money. So we were all living in this apartment, no heat. It would get like 30 degrees at night or, or less in the apartment. We could see our breath and we slept next to the drum set that was in the living room. Like if you go on YouTube, a lot of people like somebody labeled this video that of us rehearsing of me, Derek and Jason playing. It was like Chris's bedroom, but it wasn't my bedroom. It was Jason's shitty apartment. And I was living there with him and, and he was generous enough to, in fairness, he was generous enough to let me live there for free. And so, you know, he was, you know, I'm not, I'm not dogging, but maybe even any of those guys would say, yeah, that was, that was a, an experience. But, uh, but yeah, while we were, uh, while we were living there, we played a show at a party in, in Indianapolis. And like, I, I remember it, it was like somewhere in like Broad Ripple or something. And like Derek, uh, Derek like was like, just offending everybody at the party. Cause just like me, they did not get the humor, but he was like walking around and just like saying the most dry fucked up shit. But I remember it was like something he said, but I can't fucking recall it, but it was like, and then somebody just came to me like, yo, you better get your friend out of here. <laughs> and I was like, that's a drummer. And, and I don't know what he said, but, but yeah, it was like, yeah, I think a lot of people didn't get it. Like if you were in Santa Barbara, you got it. But, yeah. But anyway, all right. So, uh, I'll let you ramble at me from now on. <laughs> well, no, I tell you, you're, you're making my job way easy, man. I can just sit back and listen to stories. I love it. <laughs> so, um, with, uh, with the, with Derek and everything you've been telling me, I kind of want to know a little bit more, you know, Derek did pass away, you know, rest in peace, Derek. Uh, yeah. what, when did that happen? Were you still kind of playing with him when it happened or was it kind of past that time? Oh no, it was, it was way past. I mean, I had, <clears throat> I had seen, let's see. Uh, well, our Derek only did one. No. Okay. We did, we did three, three or four shows with the Vandals and the Luna chicks in the Midwest. That were the, those were the first shows we ever played. That was right after, right after we recorded. And we were, we were living in the Midwest during that time when we were living in Jason's apartment and we weren't that great yet. We were like, we were really, I mean, we're not great now, but no, <laughs> we just were like, we were still finding ourselves, you know, and I was playing bass at the time and, you know, the Vandals put us on these few shows that they already had out there and they wanted to see us play live. And, you know, they were like, yeah, you know, Joe was cool enough to believe in us. Like, you know, you guys will, you'll get there. And, uh, so we played those shows. We did the turd town tour. <clears throat> and after that, and, uh, Marco, he's, he was always a great guy and I'll say nothing but good things about him. But the one bad thing I'll say about him, he is the eternal Jack of all trades. He loves to have, his foot in every pot and he loves to do so many things, which is a good thing and a bad thing because at the time I was starting something where I needed people that were fully committed to this band and Derek was, and I was, but Marco was like, Oh yeah, dude. Oh, by the way, I've got this tour booked where I'm, you know, he told me the last show of the, of the tour we were doing. Uh, we had some shows with Lagwagon a uh, few as well. And he, he was like, Oh, I got this tour book with no use for name in Europe. And uh, I'm, I'm going to play bass and swing it out. by the way, that's like tomorrow <laughs> I leave. I'm like, dude, we've got a tour with us. Unwritten Law and the Dancehall Crashers coming up. Would you, you know, tell me this? So, you know, he's like, oh, sorry, dude. I don't know what to tell you. I'm like, fuck. But I don't blame him in hindsight. You know, I get it. Yeah. It was like, you've got this, or you can go to Europe, or you've got this kid who's still trying to figure out his thing. So, you know, you know, it sucked at that time that it was like, you know, he didn't, you know, he, he didn't want to tough that part out. But he'd been playing in bands for years. And this was my journey. I needed to be on it. And Derek, he was at a point where I think, you know, he was just doing it because he, he wanted to play music and, and he believed in the songs. But, you know, so that was the, the end of that. But uh, uh, I, I basically was at a point where I'm like, well, what do I do? You know, I've got this tour coming up and <clears throat> I don't have anybody to play with. And, you know, Derek, it's it, it just this situation. I, you know, 
we, I, was, I didn't have anywhere to live. I was homeless. I was living in my van in Santa Barbara, which then got impounded because in Santa Barbara, if, you, if you're sleeping in a van, the, the cops will impound your vehicle because they don't want you sleeping anywhere on the streets. And um, so, and then uh, I slept in the rehearsal space of Derek's, but then we got kicked out of there because they found Derek's syringes in, in the rehearsal space. So it's like I didn't have anywhere to sleep. And so I met Mike Davenport. Mike was our, our bass player, our live bass player for a long time. And Mike gave me a place to sleep. I slept on his couch. He's like, yo, dude, if you'll give me a chance, I'd love to play these songs and, you know, we'll find a band. And I'm like, all right. So we did. And I remember Derek came over to the house and he's like, yo, what's up? And I'm like, dude, I can't play music with you anymore. You know, I, I'd love to give you a shot, but you know, this is just becoming too much. And it was just like, you know, getting pathetic. And so, you know, me and Mike Davenport, found an ad at UCSB that said like drummer looking for band. And it was Chris Knapp, our first drummer, uh, our first drummer with, with that lineup. And, and, uh, so we went and tried him out and it turned out Chris Knapp was moonlighting at the same rehearsal space. Mike Davenport had with this guy, Marco Pina, another Marco with the C Marco was in a band with Mike. It was very incestuous in Santa Barbara with the bands, but, but, but Marco, Marco Pina got wind that we were trying out his drummer. So Marco then later, Came, came down and just in the middle of our rehearsal with me, Mike, and Chris Knapp, the kid, he strapped on a guitar and just started playing. And I'm like, holy shit. Well, there's our, there's our second guitar player. <laughs> there it goes. Cool. That's great. And, and Marco, being the guy he was, he was just pissed. He was like, dude, you guys trying to steal our drummer? What the fuck? <laughs> Playfully. And, and, and then Chris Knapp, he just didn't really listen to music. You know, he knew like two or three bands, you know. He was always a great guy, but like he came from a kind of affluent family where his you know, mom was a real estate agent, his dad was a lawyer, and he grew up going on a boat listening to Jimmy Buffett. That was like his favorite band. No shit. <laughs> and, you know, I remember we played a game in the, in, on tour one time where it was like process of elimination of like one Desert Island record, and like our roadie was like pavement, crooked rain, crooked rain. We were like, you know, all right, Weezer, Pinkerton, or Blue Album came into the play, or like you know, some other things. And then like his was like, you know, I know you're going to make fun of me, but my parents, we'd go on vacation and we lived with a Jimmy Buffett. We were like, what? Jimmy Buffett? What the fuck? Yacht rock. I'm not but, a fan so, of Jimmy Buffett at all. Story, you know? No, you know, man, I like, you know, I, I can, I can listen to some yacht rock, you know, well, I've got such a lovely soul, you know, Christopher Cross. I worked, I worked then, for Jimmy, know? I worked for Jimmy Buffett though, at, uh, I was, uh, the entertainment oh. director at Margaritaville in Jamaica. So yeah, I'm not a fan of his. He's not, I mean, he's a good Dude, guy, but not to get on a, not to get on a tangent, but that my tattoo artist in Florida, this guy, Mark Longnecker, I said the same thing to him and he's like, Dude, I worked in Key West for many years and Jimmy Buffett. He, he used to run drugs with, with, and he had a bunch of his guys got him off, I guess. And so he still to this day, like mob style, has him on the take and fucking pays him a salary because they took the rap for him. And I'm like, this guy's a fucking gangster. <laughs> and sure, if you read his book, like this guy's real deal. But, you know, everyone knows him as like the fucking doctor, you know, uh, Tommy Bahama, Jimmy Buffett, Margaritaville. But yeah, but, uh, but anyway, back to the, back to the, I guess, uh, so yeah, the, the, so Chris Knapp uh, joined the band, and then Marco joined the band, and you know, I had to basically like with Chris, I was like, all right, here's a few records you should listen to, and I gave him like, you know, Descendants and All and some other stuff, and I'm like, listen to this, this is kind of what we're doing. And literally two weeks later, <clears throat> we learned a whole set of songs. We showed up for the first shows with Unwritten Law and Dancehall Crashers, and the girl Stormy, who was Derek's like best friend, who booked those bands and booked like Millifax and everybody, she was the big agent at the time. 
and she helped us too for a while, but then kind of let us go. Uh, she was like, where's Derek? And, and we're like, look, you know, Derek's not with us anymore. And it's a whole new band, but give us a chance. <laughs> and we showed up and I think, you know, that was finally when it was like, this is what the Atari's is going to sound like. And it was like blue skies, all the blue skies songs I've been writing. And we showed up and like, you know, we started playing those songs. And honestly, I don't think we played <clears throat> very many anywhere, but here are songs at all. It was mostly like, here's all these blue sky songs that I'd written since I'd been in California. And, and, and everyone started taking notice, but it was like, then, you know, we had a band that had a work ethic and we like went out and just toured and toured. And then from like, I guess, you know, 98, 99, I, you know, I moved to Santa Barbara in like July of 97, I believe it was. And then we just toured relentlessly all around the area, out to Arizona, California, Las Vegas. And we built up enough of a following, but we were still playing to like two or three people. And then the story I always, always tell when I knew it was taking off, you know, and, and picking up steam <clears throat> was we got a few shows on the Fat Rec Tour because Fat, uh, they basically, uh, Fat Mike, who I met when I first flew out to California and, and, you know, recorded with Derek and, uh, cause they, they took me the night I flew into California. They took me to, to Mike's birthday party in San Francisco at this place, uh, in the Fairmont hotel. So here I was this wide eyed kid going to, you know, <laughs> Mike's birthday party and That's in crazy. this fucking room that had a floating. Yeah, it was crazy. And then the room had a floating Island in it. It was the, it was the, uh, Oh God, the, the Tiki lounge in the Fairmont. And there was like a, a an Asian lounge singer that was singing like rad like karaoke style lounge songs on the island that it, it like had like a moat around. It was a fucking really big trip for me. And I met Mike, and Mike's like, "Look, if this thing with Joe and I know Joe my whole life, if this thing doesn't work out, I'm always here. You know, I believe in Derek, and I, you know, I'd love to get, you know listen to your songs and you know hit me up." And so like years later, after you know Kung Fu kind of gave up on us after the first record anywhere but here, and they moved on and kind of like. Look, you know, you know, the, the record they try to push is like Derek's new band. You know, in fact, there was a sticker on the CD that said like, you know, Derek from Lagwagon's new band. Uh, but, you know, they were like, look, you know, the record didn't do well, you know, you know, but if we'll put out your next record. But at the time, we didn't have any new music out. And it was like October. And we were like, what if we could get like a seven inch or something out last minute? So we call I called up Mike and I'm like, hey, would you be willing to put out like a seven inch or, or something? He's like, sure, just get Joe's approval. And. You know, we'll get it out by November. We just go record it now. And we'll just flip it over and, and get it out. And so you guys will have something to tour on. And then they put us on some Fat Rec shows uh, for the Fat Rec tour. And uh, I called Joe up and I'm like, Joe, will you, uh, will you let us put up, uh, put out an EP or a seven or a seven inch on, on Fat? And he was in Australia. So he started doing the like crinkle the thing in the mouthpiece of the phone so it sounded like static. He's like, ah, <laughs> ah I'll call me back on Monday. Ah. I'm like, oh, cool. You said okay. Oh, you said we could put out an EP. Cool. Thanks. What? <laughs> Click. Hung up. Called Mike back. I'm like, Mike. Joe said it's okay. He said we can actually do an EP. He's like, okay, cool. So I called the blasting room in Fort Collins, the Descendant Studio. I booked some time. We went out and recorded it and uh, put it out. And then uh, Mike put the song Sandemus on this fat rec comp that he would give out to everybody for free yeah. with mail order. Anyone would mail order something. And at the time, like. Besides Epitaph, Fat were like the biggest, biggest label of, of like indie bands <clears throat> or punk rock bands. So we were doing a, a little few shows we booked to get out to three shows of the Fat Records tour on the East Coast. And we played a basement of a bagel shop in Albuquerque. We got paid $5, a dollar a head. There were five people there. Didn't you get and free bagels too? Bag Didn't you get like free day old yeah, bagels? Yeah, trash bag. <laughs> yeah, it was a trash bag full of day old bagels. They were day old. So they were hard as a rock. 
and we had a bagel fight with them until we were black and blue with marks because they were so hard. They were like rocks. <laughs> and, and our van smelled like everything bagel, like garlic and onion for weeks. So <laughs> That's awesome. first show, Albuquerque, five people, $5 a head. And then as we slowly met our way out east, it was like 25 people, 100 people. And they were like, what's going on? This is really weird. And then suddenly we realized people were singing along with San Dimas, and then people were singing along with a couple other songs. It was like, shit, something's really happening, and this is really cool. And then by the time we got on the East Coast with the Fat Rec Tour, we actually had a couple hundred kids that were there to see us every night. We're like, this is fucking rad. And then from there, it was just like, <clears throat> once Blue Skies came out the following year, it was already recorded and done, but we recorded that EP, Look Forward to Failure, after it, and put that out in November. And then... Uh, then, um, any, I'm uh, sorry, Blue Skies came out in like, I think it was like what, 98 or 99 of next of the following year, of, of like March. And then Blue Skies was out and everybody was like, where can we get this record? And Kung Fu had shitty distribution. But once Kung Fu's, Kung Fu's distribution got a little better and the demand of, of a fat EP helped that, then everybody started picking it up and, and then the, everything else is history <laughs> i i guess and, like even yeah. from talking to you as much as i have over the years i, I didn't know that fat was that instrumental and in kind of helping it out that's really cool oh yeah i i always kind of tell people i owe joe escalani from the vandals like my life and and i will never ever i always remain humble and I'll, I'll never forget what that guy's done for our band but fat mike as far as you know helping joe and helping us i think i think mike knew you know he could you know he knew joe since or since they were in boy scouts together and he even told me that you know he's like so i think he knew that he would he would be helping joe but he also believed in our songs you know he was a good dude and instrumental in that and you know i just always knew it was like mike you know he was he was a guy that in those early days you know he i i think you know he just had a good eye for for people and their songs and i mean he you know if you look at all the bands that he signed you know whether you like them or not you can't deny that like those Propagandi, Lagwagon, you know, all those bands, like they had great songs. And, you know, they weren't just punk rock bands. They were just rock bands with good songs. They were, to me, like they were better than that, you know? Yeah. People want to write all that era off. But I mean, like, dude, I think, you know, those albums, you know, be it like, you know, if you look at like Lookout, like, you know, the first Green Day albums, you know, the the first stop, you know, like that Operation Ivy album, all the, the Jawbreaker and Sam I Am, even though they weren't necessarily Lookout bands, but I always group all the East Bay stuff. And then all, all that all that era of music. I mean, I think that that uh, that music will go on is just as important as like you know, like Black Flag and the Ramones and Descendants and all those bands are to me. It's it's just a different a different time. It's like the next wave of that, <clears throat> and equally important though. Well, I, I mean, that's what I mean. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, you still listen to that Fat Records punk or that '90s punk?" I'm like, "Yeah, man. Like, I grew up on that. Like, I'm not gonna just abandon it. Of course, I like." <laughs> I like David no. Bowie and I like all these other stuff and I like, you know, indie rock and I like, but yeah. I, I grew up on the nineties punk, man. That's how it was. So. Yeah. I mean, yeah. See, for me, it was like backwards because like, you know, I, I, I think, you know, if you, one note I would say is that like those bands, I think are great, not only because of the musicianship and the, and the, and like the songs, but I could always tell when I listen to like, you know, let, like, let's talk about feelings. We listen to that and knowing Joey, I knew that the influence behind it was he took influence from like Elliot Smith and like, you know, from like, uh, oh, all kinds of, all kinds of music that was outside of punk. And to me, yeah. the best punk rock bands did that. And they stood out because they weren't just influenced by their peers. They were influenced by all walks of life. And I think that's the only thing I would say is like, 
I love all those records, but like you said, like, you know, the first thing that made me, you know, aside from being a fan of like classic rock in the seventies, I also loved, you know, first loved like all the bands like, you know, Sonic Youth and fucking all the like indie stuff. But like I said, I wasn't good enough to play that. And then when I realized that like, oh wow, you could pick up a guitar and just play three power chords and watching the Ramones. And it was like the first time I saw the Ramones play, I was like, this is mind boggling. They played like 25 songs in 30 minutes time without <laughs> stopping. And it was all eight note downstrokes, no back and forth. This is insane. And at the time I saw them around the local live album uh, era, it was like every song was about 40 BPM faster than the original version. If you listen to that live album of that era when they were touring, when I saw them, it was like ridiculous how fast those songs were. I mean, it almost took some of the dynamic away in a bad way, but it was still like, you got to be mind boggled to know that there, there are no, I mean, when Johnny and, and CJ were playing downstrokes, like that is impossible to do. Try to fucking pick up a guitar or a bass and play along with that and not do back and forth strokes on the guitar bass. What, what it's year, what insane. year was that? What year was that that you saw them? Cause I saw them at Lollapalooza, I think, which was like 96 or something. That was the only time I saw them live. It was, uh, I went and saw them play in Louisville in, I think it was 97 or 95. It was right around the Lollapalooza thing, but they did some shows of their own. And then they did some shows where they opened up for white zombie. And I like, <laughs> wow. I, you know, I respected white zombie. You know, it was, it was right around the, the era of like, you know, uh, that, uh, the big white zombie album. And, you know, when he was on, they were on like beers and butthead and shit. But, uh, but yeah, the Ramones did some shows of their own where like zombie had them and motorhead out. I'm like, well, fuck that. I, I mean, I'm not a white, big white zombie fan, but I went to see the Ramones and then I stuck around for a little motorhead and then I bailed. And, uh, and it was literally my, my, uh, my ex was pregnant with my daughter at the time. And I was like, yeah, bitches, my daughter get to see the Ramones or hear them <laughs> <laughs> through the womb. Yeah, that right. show. And then we, we took, we went and saw Smashing Pumpkins on the Melancholy and Infinite Sadness tour at Market Square Arena with garbage opening. And so it was like, that was two shows she got to get to feel. <laughs> and that's why she was named Starla after the Smashing Pumpkins song, uh, Starla. It was the name of the Smashing Pumpkins Well, that's, that's funny because si- Silas, my, my son, you know, Felicia, my wife, was pregnant with him when I went yeah. and saw you guys and played some songs with you in, in Pensacola. So Silas's first kind of in utero concert was the Ataris. So there you go. Ah, I'm I'm very flattered. <laughs> That's great. Hopefully man. we didn't we didn't we didn't harm him with our loud guitar. <laughs> I don't know. He, he's pretty crazy and he likes music. So so maybe maybe it had something to do. with I it. I bet he does. That's cool. Yeah, I think I would be I would be astounded if your kids weren't fans of music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're pretty into music. It's pretty crazy. My daughter every night when I put her to That's sleep, when every night when I like change her diaper, get her ready for bed, I play this same like. Uh, kind of mellow kind of indie rock kind of seat. It's going to, it's a mix CD. And every night, if I don't do it, she gets upset. She wants me to turn it on before <laughs> I start doing it. And she's only like nine months old, That's man. That's amazing. Yeah. It's so cool. How like, Sorry, man. There's a weird delay, but it's fine. Yeah. Silas has got a. He's already got no, a. Right. He's already got a guitar. He's got a ukulele. He's got drumsticks. He, he's he's into music now, man. That's so cool, man. Yeah, I mean, I think you should definitely always feed feed child's minds, you know, as young as possible with instruments. Like my parents, my dad bought me a drum set at five. My my mom, uh, my grandmother bought me an acoustic guitar at like four or six. One of those. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, where maybe they'll just beat around on it, you know, and 
you know, make a bunch of noise. I mean, obviously giving a, a, a kid a drum set, it's a really bold move, yeah. <laughs> you know, because you know you're going to have to put up with it. With a guitar, you'd be like, here, yeah, here's some headphones. Here's a little practice amp. Put it, put it on and don't play it loud. <laughs> but with drum set, it's like, okay. I guess you could buy him like a, a one of those like awesome electronic kits or something to practice on at home. But, but yeah, they brought me like a, a Ludwig drum kit that was like, all right, here you go. But I mean, you know, I didn't, you know, I think it was like, well, my parents were split up at the time, so my the drum set was at my dad's, and like he had a wild party, and people destroyed the kit. And so I think that was the end of my drum playing at the time. Until years later, then I bought a kit of my own and started playing again. But uh, guitar, though, it was like I think I played for I don't know maybe five years, and then uh, I didn't really feel like I I got good until it was like you know I got a guitar again at like ten, and I immediately just like could mimic anything by ear and just play it back. And then I'd say by thirteen, I was like you know, fluent enough to like, I just started writing my own songs. <clears throat> but as far as what you mentioned earlier, like how I play backwards, um, I'm right-handed as you know, but I just, it felt natural as a, as a young kid, like at five when I had a guitar to like hold it up to the TV and do like the mirror image. When I looked at like Ace Freely playing guitar, it was like, you, you match the object. It's like, if you look at him playing guitar on TV, you know, he's holding the guitar, the guitar neck goes to the right of the TV and I'm, I kind of mirror image, but that wasn't really it. It was more, I, I felt that when I made chords, since I'm right-handed, making chords with my right hand felt more natural and strumming with my left hand felt more natural. So I just flip, I only had a right-handed guitar, so I just flip it over and I'd play like that. And that's just always how I, how I would do it. I mean, I have a picture of myself at like, you know, three or four years old or whatever, or with my, my toy kiss guitar and I have it flipped over, flipped around playing it backwards. So it's uh, <laughs> awesome. strange that my brain always worked that way, but I mean, that's just how it, how I always did it. <laughs> and I can't play the other way to save my life. I'll say as a guitar instructor, I mean, that's kind of what, that's what I do for a living now full time. And it kind of, when you think about it, the, you want to have a strong hand, make the chord shapes and do all the stuff. So it kind of does make sense how you play. I don't really understand yeah. why, why the traditional way is the <laughs> other way, but yeah. So good job <laughs> on you, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, it works. I mean, I met there's this really cool kid who comes to our shows in uh, from San Diego who who he 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 tried to learn the, the the backwards way I play because I guess because he he's a fan of the band and he, he he wanted to see if he could do it and he could play both ways and I'd be like dude I'd love to be able to play right handed and just like show up and just mess with our fans and like just show up on stage and just play the whole set right handed <laughs> but I can't I've tried I just I just can't do it and I, when I started playing drums. I played backwards and I was like, Nope, I'm not going to do it this way. And I, I taught myself, I changed it around and played the other way, but yeah, I was naturally wanting to do it the other way, but I'm like, nah. And, and eventually I caught on standard, you know, instead of goofy. Cool. So we are, uh, we're approaching 50 minutes now. I like to keep these around an hour. Cool. So since this is yeah. that one time on tour and you know, you like me, I'm an avid traveler, I'm, I'm approaching, uh, almost 60 countries now. And, uh, I know, I know you've got more than that. So I'd like to hear about, it can either be like a tour story or your favorite or least favorite place that you've been in your travels overseas. If you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, it's really hard. Cause I love, I love, you know, just like you, I love travel so much. I, I, I can't even begin to think like how many countries I, I'm going to add it up now, but like one of those like Facebook things pop up. I, I, I think I saw one that you did of like all the countries you visit and you like click on and you see 
which is secretly probably some like analytics thing that like you know, <laughs> yeah. keeps tabs on you or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, favorite places to visit? I love Berlin. I love uh, Thailand. Like you know, anywhere in Thailand because the people are so warm and friendly, and it's so cheap to travel. I've backpacked around Southeast Asia like three times now, and I love nothing more than just getting on a train and like you know, me in a backpack, like you know, traveling through like the rice paddies, watching the sun go down or come up over, you know, these like fields and seeing all the like people just, you know, I'd see people like showering in their yards and washing their clothes out of a bucket and just seeing how love exists anywhere in the world, no matter how simple the life. And, you know, now these people have like internet and social media to worry about, or like, you know, the things that we take for granted day to day, but they're just like real love and real, like, you know, and that's why I, I, I love the vibe there. Now Berlin, I love because, you know, the first time I was touring Europe, you know, you know, I didn't know what to expect in Germany. And I kind of thought I wasn't going to like it. But when I got to Berlin, it was like this city that had all the modern convenience that you would want somewhere. But it was also had a lot of beauty of the old. But it also had, you know, the modern convenience and all of the, the things that you would uh, come to find from, you know, westernized places. But it was a good balance of both. Because, you know, you're, you're walking around the city at night and, you know, you see a lot of the old uh, kind of Cold War era stuff that still exists. I mean, the whole city was leveled to ruin. And that just baffled my mind to be walking around here and be like, this is where, like, all that crazy shit went down, you know? Like, this was, it was just so mind-boggling. And then I got more and more fascinated with, like, Eastern Bloc countries and Eastern Europe and, you know, always wanted to go and visit a lot more of that. And I did finally. And, you know, it's it's tough to travel around, like, some of that area because, like, I recently did like the Ukraine for the first time and, and meanwhile I've traveled around there on some trains and like the train car we were in, like she was like shoveling coal in it and like the whole train filled up with black smoke. And I'm like, <laughs> this is fucking gnarly. I have asthma and I like couldn't breathe. I had to like literally sit out the back and it was like half open and it was just snowy cold. And I'm like, well, this is the lesser of two evils, but this is what I wanted, like roughing it. And like, it was definitely really awesome to experience, but like, man, it was uh it was a heavy trip, you know, traveling around Ukraine on, on some trains because it was like the, the train cars are like a million degrees. And it's like the the dial has been like broken off circa Soviet era. You know, like yeah. you can't, it's either on or on. And uh, it was a trip. But, uh, but yeah, Berlin and uh, I mean, Thailand as a whole. I mean, you know, Bangkok's a cool city, but like some of the smaller cities are pretty great. But as far as touring, um, well, is there is there a place that you is there a place that you didn't really like in your travels somewhere that you don't want to go back to, touring or otherwise? <laughs> uh, I'm sure I can think of a few places. Let me see. <laughs> uh, you can always chop it if it, while I'm thinking. Uh, let's see here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think my least favorite place, and not really a place, but I mean, I guess my least favorite is. Uh, uh, shit. It's so hard to say. I mean, I, there are a little, I'm like, I'm pretty easygoing, but I mean, there are little things I hate about places, but usually I just hate like when we go to a place and like, it's like, like I said earlier, like when we're talking about Gilman street, like I, I hate playing like venues that are like, I mean, whenever, when you're a kid, you know, I love playing all ages shows, but I like playing all ages shows now that are more like dive bars that do all ages and stuff. But when we play like the, like community center, youth center type spaces, it almost always goes bad in some way because it's like the venue is way out in the middle of nowhere and nobody knows about it and it's always like the worst fucking bands that open because it's all the like you know emo screamo shit or like you and know there's like nine the, or ten of them it's not my thing 
What's that? And there's nine or 10 of them. I, I, I just remember, you know, like we'd show up on some of those gigs in the States or other places that were some of the smaller markets mm-hmm. and, you know, there'd be five or six bands before us. Like, man, that's not cool. You know? Yeah. Anymore. We always, it's a two, two, two locals maximum. So it's three band bills. It's like, yeah, you play enough like six band bills and, and it starts to drive you crazy. It's like, no, no, no bashing that. But like every show is not a festival. A festival is a festival. And like, there's no reason. Cause if you have five openers on a show, I mean, I think the theory is it's not cool anyway, but then, you know, they, if they think, Oh, there's four members per each band and they all bring two people, but it's like, yeah, but if they have like 10 guests each, then it makes no sense. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's kind of silly. But yeah, so I guess, I guess if I had to say, it isn't so much places I don't like, but I'm not a big fan of like those type of like, you know, those type of spaces, you know, with quotations, yeah. spaces that have like, you know, I love hall shows and I love like that type of theory and thought of like, yeah, we create these shows that are like collectives that are, that are, yeah, like it's like, I don't know. It's it kind of, some of those can be pretentious and they'll have like the big list of rules on the wall, like no swearing, no talking about this no talking about it's like come on man you know punk rock is punk rock you know it should be all inclusive and it should be something that's positive but it also shouldn't have a list of fucking rules on the wall either it should be dangerous and real and honest and unbridled and you know i i loved nirvana because it was chaotic and you never knew what you were going to expect and if i have some venue where i'm not allowed to like you know jump up on the fucking pa and jump onto the drum set you know or whatever it's like I, you know, I don't want to damage people's shit, but if it's my shit and I'm doing that and I'm not hurting anybody but myself, then why not? You know, but yeah, sometimes, uh, yeah, that, that kind of, that kind of thing is a turn off. but, uh, I don't know about cities though. I mean, do you have a, a, a least favorite place we played? <laughs> um, like, uh, I mean, honestly, sure you could jog my memory. Well, I'll tell you the one I, there there the shows that I played with the Ataris that I kind of loved and hated for different reasons when we would do the college shows. Like, yeah. I, I love the fact that it was full rider and we got kind of anything we wanted and we felt like rock stars. <laughs> but then the shows always cool? sucked yeah. because the kids always yeah, maybe maybe yeah. knew one song and that nobody ever knew how to run sound. And it was always in a gym like and it, it was just horrible. Yeah. But yeah, that's so yeah, that, that's, that's my pet that's peeve. True. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. I mean, to see, everybody has different things they love. And like, you know, I, I, I definitely know, like, I think our, when we play those type of shows, like. Yeah, our drummer's the same. If I have like a case of Coke Zero and a fucking case of water, but you know, I know it's really rad. It's like, especially when you first start out playing in a band, it's like if you show up and there's like a full spread of stuff, that's pretty baller and cool. And yeah. you know, every once in a while, I'm like, oh, rad. It makes it makes you feel good, but at the same time, it's like, well, you know, so for it. And you know, if it's a shitty turnout, then it's like, why are they wasting all this money? <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> those are the shows where it's always like. You probably have about 20 kids that are probably, you know, college students running the show, and they probably don't know how to run a punk rock show. And they're just like, okay, we have this big college budget. Let's just piss it away and, you know, we'll buy like all this crazy shit. But it's like, well, why don't you spend on the most important thing, sound? <laughs> or why don't you just give and it give it to maybe, us as a buyout? Know, promotion. <laughs> just yeah, give, just give it to the band, yeah. man. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, Chris. Yeah, that's true. And uh, then we'll t- put it in gas or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, we're hitting an hour now. So I've got one more thing to ask cool. you. Um, I know that you you're currently playing some acoustic shows, playing some full band shows. What's next for the Ataris? What's on the agenda coming up? I know you guys have some touring plans coming up. 
we have this uh, 15th anniversary tour of So Long Astoria coming up, and that's uh, the, the the first wave of it is all a loop from the West Coast out to Colorado and then kind of up to the Pacific Northwest and back down. But we're not forgetting the rest of the country. We're just doing those separately at another time. Uh, and then I do uh, – I have been doing a few more acoustic shows now that I'm back on the West Coast. It's a lot easier to, like, do sporadic one-off things. Uh, I've also been doing some fun private shows, which I'm going to do more of because – there's nothing more rad than like, you know, putting a post out on Facebook and be like, yo, I'll play some private shows and then showing up and just playing for like 20 people that really love what you do in their living room. And it's a really cool personal experience. Like Mike Herrera has been doing it, like Tim from Cursive and The Good Life's been doing it. Like it's fun. And, and that way you don't hurt any of the markets you're going to go back and play later a month later because those private shows don't affect those shows and promoters won't get pissed yeah. that you're like doubling up, you know. So yeah, I've been doing all that and it's a lot of fun. So, um, and then, uh, I guess that's it. The rest of the year, this year doing a lot of stuff abroad, like Europe and Asia again. And, uh, we did Europe last year, so we'll probably go back and do it next year. And, uh, some, uh, stuff in, uh, Asia again. Uh, cool. That's about it right now. I mean, I'm trying to, you know, me live life. Uh, oh, let's plan a tour. Oh, it's next week. Cool. <laughs> okay. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to be better at that. You know, but yeah. yeah, man, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's an honor. I'm stoked you're doing this, this podcast and, great to be a part of it finally yeah it's uh it's going it's going really well and i mean you know you're a friend of mine we have some experiences together so you were on my short list to have on the show so thank you for finally you know we we got it figured out and i appreciate it man and it's yeah i'm really glad you're doing so well i'm glad you're doing so well and i'm really excited to uh you know just keep following what you're doing (laughs) we're all getting old man it's crazy yeah yeah, how is no, your back? Is your is your back family and everything? Is your back doing okay? Got a new MRI last month and it's getting exceptionally worse just from years of stage diving and crowd surfing and all that shit. But I mean, you know, I live. I think my thing is if I the more like heavy lifting I do on shows, then I go home and I'm I'm in fucking pain for a month. But I mean, you know, I I, I can function and you know, I'm definitely definitely not you know. I, I had when I was in Southeast Asia I got like a like some sort of virus from I don't know if it's something I ate or mosquito born, but it was like I was sick for a bit and that kind of sucked. But uh, but yeah, I've been doing great, super stoked. I have a rad wife and fucking good life and can't complain about anything. Definitely, definitely living. <laughs> You're a good dude, man, and I miss you and I love you and I'll talk to you very soon. Okay. Well, yeah. Anytime you play in your area, you're always welcome to come and come and rock with it. Cool, man. It sounds great. It was great talking to you, Chris. You too, man. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. And there it was, my conversation with my good friend Christopher Rowe from the Ataris. Uh, thank you guys very much for checking out this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. The Ataris are going to be doing some touring soon, so check them out if they're in your neck of the woods. Uh, next week on the show, I could not be more excited to bring you my conversation with Mr. Charlie Paulson from Goldfinger and Black President. Our conversation spanned everything from old school punk to new wave ska to sports. <laughs> he got me to talk about basketball, so you guys need to come back for that. So make sure that you are following us on all of the social media platforms at TOTOT Podcast. If you want to get in touch, TOTOT Podcast at gmail.com. If you want to call the TOTOT hotline, leave me some love, some hate, tell me a story. That's 1-765-372-8818. So thank you guys very much for checking out this week's episode. Come back next week. I'm going to leave you with an Atari song, one that is near and dear to my heart. I love this song. It's Fast Times at Dropout High. It's actually the re-recording that is on the new release, Silver Turns to Rust. So if you like this, 
Go check it out. You can get yourself a copy at enjoytheriderecords.com. But here it is, Fast Times at Dropout High by the Ataris. See you guys next week.
number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.